founders, what's going on. You guys know I love in-person events and they are back. The recording you're about to hear is from our most recent event where we had hundreds of founders come together, share intimate details, templates, KPIs, OKRs about their business. And it was something special, something special. We'd love to meet you in person. If you want to see the next live events we have coming up via our schedule, the link will be down below in the description. If you're listening on iTunes, check this out on YouTube. You'll see the links in the description, or you can just Google Founder Path or Latka next event. We'd love to see you in person. In the meantime, though, enjoy this recording. It's a good one. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to getlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to getlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at getlatka.com. Please help me welcome Godard Abel with G2 to the stage. Take it away. Have fun. You bet. And I do wish, is this mic working? Yeah. It is? Okay, yeah. As I was saying, I wish I had big biceps like me. <laughs> I asked him how he does that, and he said 3,600 calories in, 3,200 out. And I some weightlifting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more of a runner, so in my old age, I'm trying to stay skinny. But I wish I had those biceps. <laughs> but what I'm here to talk to you about is, yes, building SaaS companies. And maybe just to get us going, it is Friday morning. I was at a lovely dinner. Thank you, Nathan. Great event. And love being with all of you. I, I think I consider you all my brethren, my brothers and sisters in building businesses. And I do often like to say I think building a SaaS company is like being a parent. I also have three kids. And, uh, and I do think now I've built three companies, so three three SaaS babies, and I'm also now, I like to say, uncle, where I'm chairman, couple helping some entrepreneurial family, so I also have nieces and nephews, SaaS businesses, and, uh, but I, I do love building SaaS businesses, but just to get us going, like, please stand up if you uh, have started at least one SaaS company. That's probably why you're here, most of you, I assume. Whoa. Don't fall over backwards. I didn't have that much wine last night. Um, yes, so all of you, yes. And then, well, well, hold on. Stay standing if you've started two SaaS businesses. Ooh, quite a few of you. Yes, I love it. Keep going back for more. And now sit down if you've started two and keep standing if you've done three or more. All right, we still got three. I love it. And now how about sit down unless you've done four? Anyone? All right. Yeah, and that's why I'm here. So, and I've only started three as founder CEO, but now I'm also started, helped start two as kind of executive chairman. And we have a couple more in the work. So I love building SaaS businesses, and I've been doing it now since 1998. It's a long time. I turned 50 last year, so I'm getting old. But honestly, I also like being the old guy. It's actually, I find it much more relaxing. Because I remember my first company I started when I was 27, and I was just full of adrenaline. I had bigger biceps. And, uh, but I really didn't know what I was doing. It was just all adrenaline energy. I just want to build something. You know, I was in California at the time, the Silicon Valley. Uh, actually, I started my first company, I think, in 2000, and that was still... I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember 2000. Yes, 
quite a few of you, yeah. But that was the dot-com era and super exciting time. And I was out in California going to business school there and everyone was starting companies. And I remember the time like Jerry Yang came to speak to us. He was still a big deal. I don't even know if anyone knows who Jerry is anymore. <laughs> but he started Yahoo, which was actually really big before Google. And uh, so just been a really exciting career in SaaS and I have learned a lot and I'm still learning. I think that's why I'm still doing it. I do also see entrepreneurship as a great way to keep learning, keep growing. And I think you can make a lot of money doing it, which is wonderful. I've enjoyed that. It's a great way to make a living. But I also think, and frankly, Henry talked about that yesterday with Nathan, just an incredible story uh, of you know, creating a $20 billion business. I think he still owns 12% of it. It's pretty good. How much do you still own of G2? More than that. <laughs> What's but ARR right now? 80, just 80. over 80. There you go. Okay, I like Nathan's quick questions. Just like, I think same thing Henry said, I always respect that about you, you just go right to the point. You're a storyteller, so I want to get the hard numbers out at the same time, you know? Yeah. No, and I, I don't want to talk about the numbers and making money, because, like, Henry's better at that than I am. But what I want to talk about is also everything else you can learn. And I think equally to me, it's how do you find meaning? How do you grow spiritually? And that's probably what's been really surprising, interesting to me about entrepreneurship, is it has been also a spiritual journey of personal growth, learning. And I do think entrepreneurship is a unique platform to do both. You can do really well, make a lot of money, and I think you can really grow as a human. And I think if you build a really good company, it can be a platform for others to grow as well. And I'm sure you see that, but I love that. Our entrepreneurial family now, we've hired you know, well over a thousand people over the many years, and but seeing so many of them grow with us. And now I'm also really excited helping them start their own companies. And uh, so it's also a wonderful platform we can create to make the world better. Uh, but my first job was as a McKinsey consultant, and there you get paid by the slide. So I do have quite a few slides, but mainly just pictures to hopefully help me tell stories. And uh, so let's get going. Nine key lessons learned. And first, yes, I have five SaaS babies. There's actually a sixth one in the works that I haven't announced yet. But my day job is G2, and I love building G2. And especially I also built, SaaS, built G2 for SaaS founders like us because my real inspiration was hating Gartner. Anyone here love Gartner? If you love Gartner, please leave the room. Gartner, they just signed a sponsor contract, man. Help me okay. out. Okay. All right. I love them too. Um, but they're just slow because I remember my first company, Big Machines, it took me nine years to get in a Gartner report and 12 years to become the leader. Now, how many of you want to wait 12 years to become a leader? I paid them a lot too. I probably wasn't good enough at kissing my analyst's ass. Uh, that was a part I also hated. And frankly, what I love doing, I love talking to customers. And that was really the idea for G2. Like, let's not have some analyst that can't eat the food. You know, I said it's like a restaurant critic that literally can't eat the food, right? The analyst can't use the software. And they just stand outside the restaurant asking other people, how was your meal? And I'd rather ask the people eating the meal, right? And that's why we said it's kind of a Yelp for business software when we started. And let's give the power to the customer and the user. So that was our inspiration. And it's really exciting to see G2 coming to life. We did become a unicorn last year. So that was one of my unfulfilled dreams as an entrepreneur. But my next unfulfilled dream, I do want to be like Henry. And so eventually, I hope we can ring the bell. But we still have a ways to go. And my first company, Big Machines, as I mentioned, I started this in 2000, dot-com era. I was a 27-year-old cocky kid. At the time, investors liked that. Because it was dot-com, and frankly, we were completely clueless. But I recruited four like, smart kids from MIT, Stanford, and we started out. We were able to raise $20 million the first year. 
just based on hype and the internet. And back then, VCs were not so critical. Like, there were no metrics, there was nothing. You just kind of had hype and a vision. Uh, but the vision was really inspired also by my father. My father was an entrepreneur, but in a very different industry. He made pumps, industrial pumps. I was born in Germany, and it was a good, kind of small, what they call Mittelstand, a small German pump manufacturing company. And uh, he was making these pumps. You can see a picture of a blue little able pump there. But they're piston membrane pumps, pumps for complex applications. And what really inspired my first company, I went home to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He moved us from the Pittsburgh of Germany, Essen, which is, if any of your soccer fans, is right next to Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund. But the kind of northwest industrial part of Germany, we moved to Pittsburgh because he wanted to start a U.S. subsidiary. And, uh, but I was talking to my father about the internet. I went back home for Thanksgiving 99. I was in the Silicon Valley, which at the time was called the Reality Distortion Zone. Might still be that. But I think at the time also Jeff Bezos was already famous and everyone was afraid of getting Amazoned, which is still true 22 years later. <laughs> but, uh, but as I was talking to my dad, I'm like, hey, how's the pump industry going to be disrupted by the internet? I think he's like, well, it's disruption. And uh, he just said it's not. Yeah, because I sell these complex pumps, and every pump we have to configure a different pump with, you know, based on the flow rate, pressure, viscosity, chemical composition of the fluid, we have to configure different pump motors, couplings, housings, and there's no way I could sell it online like a book. Uh, but then I had the idea, I saw what Dell was doing, and Dell was one of the also most successful entrepreneurs in the 90s, but Michael Dell had started selling PCs online, and PCs were also very configurable. You can choose your memory, your hard drive, your screen size, and behind the scenes they had a configuration engine, that allowed you to price it in real time, make sure all the components fit together, and even order it online. And so the basic idea for big machines was let's help my father do the same thing. But my dad only had two IT people. They didn't know anything about the internet. They didn't even have a website. And they also were really just focused on their ERP system. And so really decided to build it what today you'd call the cloud. I think back then we called it on-demand software. And uh, because we said, hey, let's just, cause you know, let's just take the hosting, all of that stuff out of them. But back then it was still really hard. We had to raise 20 million bucks because we had to buy like Sun servers, you know, Spark servers, Oracle database licenses, build our own. At first it was like in our office. We had like a big server room and then eventually went to Colo. But all that stuff was super hard and super expensive. So you also had to raise, you, know, you literally needed millions just to get the thing live. And, and then we did get live with a ton of hype, hired like 70 people. And I was 27. I'm like, wow, we're going to go public in a year. I remember one of my first investors was John Scully. You have to be old to remember him. But he's sort of infamous. If you've watched like, the movies about Apple, he's the guy that fired Steve Jobs. So that's not a great track record. Uh, but he was very famous at the time still. And uh, you know, so he, he was my first investor. And then once I had him invest, everyone, he, and his advice to me was just like, just think about how you go public in one year. And I was like, that sounds awesome. So we hired 70 people, didn't know what we were doing. And frankly, in hindsight, it was a really bad way to build a SaaS business because I think in hindsight, I certainly realized in one year you never build a good product uh, or a good company. But then, and our journey got much harder. So a year into it, all of a sudden, like at the end of 2000, I'm like, oh, great, we'll raise our next round. But all the VCs then were like, no, you're a young, dumb, clueless kid. And the internet was a fad. And it went into like dot bomb. That's what everyone was saying. And then I'd call on customers like, hi, we're from bigmachines.com. Eventually dropped the .com. They're like, oh, when are you going bankrupt? And then 9-11 happened and all these manufacturers were like, well, I'm not investing in anything. And uh, the internet was a fad. So goodbye. 
So I think for a couple of years, we were only selling like two or three customers a year. I think my business plan to my investors was like, we're going to sign up 50, then 100. And really, it just wasn't selling at all. So it was a very painful time. And then we had to cut way back. You know, I did like several layoffs, went all the way down to 20 people. And it was also very depressing. I remember I just felt all this failure. Because my father, actually, I convinced him to become my first customer and investor. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose all my dad's money. I had recruited my friends from MIT, my best friends. I'm like, I'm going to ruin their careers. And we're going to go bankrupt. That's kind of what it felt like. Um, so very hard time. But then I think in 2003, we kind of had our come to Jesus moment. Because my co-founder and I, Chris, we sat down. We're like, hmm, we have a million dollars left. We burned through 19. We only had a million dollars in revenue. And we're like, clearly, we're not going to be able to raise any more money. And so it's either do we give the last million back and quit, or do we keep going? And, uh, and ultimately, we did have about a dozen early manufacturing customers. They were having success. They were actually accelerating their sales quoting, selling online through their distributors with big machines. And we're like, eventually, the market will come. So we decided to persevere, cut the company down to 20 people. And we're like, OK, we got to cut it to a point where in a year, we can actually get profitable and cash flow positive, because we'll never raise more money. And then we did pull that off. We just started selling one deal at a time. We actually got cash flow positive. And, and then I think the other really smart thing we did, um, well, one, we figured out how to sell the product. I'll talk more about that. But I hired Matt Gorniak, who's become kind of my best friend. He was a young sales guy at the time. But he and I really figured out how to sell together. And he became our CRO. And the other smart thing I did at the time, I went to talk to Mark Benioff. And he was just, Salesforce was still private, but I remember I met him at a Salesforce event in Chicago, and I'm like, hey, Mark, I think we could partner because we were using his CRM. And at the time, it was really only for SMBs, maybe mid-market companies. But I said, hey, some of your customers are going to need a sales quoting tool, sales configuration tool. Siebel has one. And he said, great, let's partner. So this was before the Apex change. I think they had like Apex, Apex, so we partnered with them. And then for a couple of years, that also didn't work. I think first year we partnered, we had like one or two joint customers. But then all of a sudden, by, you know, then it turned a corner because Salesforce started moving up market. And I remember our first big deal with them was with Rico, the big copier, multifunction printer company. But they were looking at Salesforce and Siebel. And they said to Salesforce, we're like, hey, unless you have a configurator, we're not buying your product. And then they called us. And so they started bringing us into a lot of deals and the business really started growing. And so eventually, it actually turned into a big success. And we did scale it. We never raised more money. Um, we actually scaled cash flow positive and uh, ultimately had a great exit to Oracle. And, uh, but that was, I think, really our formative years was just learning how to sell. And I do think you learn the most by pain. Just like your kids, you put the hand on, your hand on the stove and it really hurts, but then you don't do it again. And the second company, yeah, we learned a lot because uh, after we sold Big Machines to Oracle. Actually, after we'd started G2, we decided to do another one because right after Oracle bought Big Machines, we're like, wow, there's going to be a big vacuum in the Salesforce ecosystem, and there's still a big need for sales configuration quoting tools. So we decided to build another one. We partnered with Max Rudman. He was already building an app called Code Quickly, and we started at the beginning of 2014. That's Max and I. That's our ribbon cutting. It was like a really shitty office in the Chicago suburbs, suburb called Highland Park. But I think we actually had two rooms. One room had like eight people. That was G2. And then we opened the back room. And the, I remember the heating system in the building didn't even work. Um, but then, and at the time, Max's original product had about a million ARR. And then in two years, we scaled it. Actually, we beat that plan. That was a plan. But we scaled it to 16 million in two years and got acquired by Salesforce. And we did like the double-double. VCs love that. We double every six months. 
And the first company, I never hit my sales plan, I think for seven years. Steelbrick, we never missed. It was, um, while well, I was running it, I think like 17 quarters in a row, first as a startup and then inside the sales force. So that was just incredible. And I think the big difference was, well, one, product market fit was much better, clearly. I mean, by then, the cloud was a thing, and people needed CPQ apps, but also we just knew what we were doing, and we were able to take the whole team and everything we learned the first time and just do it so much faster. And now G2, that is my focus, my day job. And G2, we'd started, like I said, in parallel to, or before Steelbrick even, but it was going so slow that Matt and I decided we wanted to go build another company. Because for a couple of years, we couldn't make any money at G2. And we had this great vision, let's build Yelp for software, but then we realized nobody wants to write reviews. And, and I think Yelp, their founder, did some great blogs. He's like, yeah, 99% of people only read reviews, they never write them. And frankly, I thought about it myself, I'm like, wow, I never wrote a review until I started a review company, but I'd read them. I'm like, this is great, right? TripAdvisor, Yelp, it was all like a free resource to me, but I, I was too busy to write them. And that's what we realized with G2, we're like, F, this is hard. Nobody wants to write reviews. And I think our first, we launched it at Dreamforce. We just put out a booth. because so we decided to start with Salesforce and partner apps. But, and then we were just handing out $5 startups, Starbucks cards, like, hey, please write a review. And we did that. I think at Dreamforce, we got like 1,000 reviews. We went back to our office. I remember it was like October. And like, we looked at Google Analytics, and we had like one person on the site, literally. You know that, that Google real-time analytics? And you see one. <laughs> and then, like, then we got really excited because the second one popped up in Europe. We're like, wow, two. And then I'm like, oh shit, it's my dad. <laughs> Do you guys care about valuation right now, specifically your valuation? Do you think you might raise soon or sell a portion of the company? There is no other tool on the internet that you can use to get a better and higher valuation than FounderPath's new valuation tool. We have over 253 deals that went down over the past 30 days, all the revenue numbers, all the valuations, and the multiplier. That way you can go filter the data, find companies that are your same size, what they sold or raised for or at, and then use those as comparables in your decks to argue and debate and get a higher valuation and less dilution, which is the name of the game, less dilution. Check it out today at founderpath.com forward slash products. That's plural forward slash valuations. Again, both plural founderpath.com forward slash products forward slash valuations. So it was a hard business to build because we had this massive cold start. And uh, so actually that's why I went to go build Steelbook with Matt because we're like, we like driving revenue. But then my co-founder, Tim, did a great job while I was building Steelbrick scaling the company and eventually we got past this cold start and obviously really excited because how many of you are G2 customers? Quite a few. Thank you. You all can be. Uh, but you know we do work with 3,000 software vendors now including Henry and ZoomInfo but you know to help them and obviously G2 in some ways is like Yelp you can be our for free you can be number one. We're very committed to that if you have the best reviews and most reviews like Slack has been number one on G2 for many years. They've never paid us a penny to my frustration. But then we try to upsell Slack and others premium marketing tools that you know, hopefully help you drive more growth. Um, but so it's really exciting to see G2 coming to life and hope to work with all of you to validate your apps and help you become the leader in you know, 12 months, not in 12 years. And what have we learned? Um, so number one, you know, what have we learned about growth? Uh, then I want to talk a little bit about what we've learned about talent. And finally, what are some of the you know, great lessons I've learned from Mark Benioff and others? And so number one, ride big waves. 
And I think we're really lucky we're all riding this wave, software's eating the world. Mark Andreessen said this in 2012, right when we were starting G2. And I think it's been so true. And the beauty of it is, I think it's going to continue. So I've been really lucky my whole career, 20 plus years, has been in the software industry and it's just been growing. It's like the ultimate tailwind. And frankly, I think the only mistake I ever made was selling any of our companies because they've all just gotten more valuable because this market keeps growing. And the good news for us, I think it's going to continue another 30 years. And this is, I think, some battery ventures data. But it's, you know, the market's going to 10x again. So frankly, I, I like to think of it, if you do nothing, your business will be 10 times bigger. And, uh, and I think this is really cool, the software industry. Yes, we have over 100,000 apps now on G2, and it just keeps growing. So I think we all have this amazing tailwind because there is now purpose-built software for every industry, and you all are creating it. Like I was just, We were just talking like for tax advisors, and it's amazing entrepreneurs just keep building better and better apps for more and more business and functions. Um, and I think a part of our strategy is also we like to partner with giants. Like I said, our success. I'm very thankful to Mark Benioff because really... Thanks to him, Big Machines and his ecosystem. Same thing with Steelbrick. Now they're also an investor in G2. But I think partnering also with Giants, we partner with AWS Marketplace, we partner with Microsoft Azure, we partner with IBM Red Hat. So three of the four largest cloud marketplaces in the world are now powered by G2 reviews. And because uh, not everyone comes to G2.com yet. And so we said, hey, let's put it where the buyers are going. And uh, so now your reviews that are on G2.com will also go to these marketplaces. And I. I like to look at this as a trillion-dollar arms race and between Microsoft, Google, Amazon. They're all literally, you know, I think, betting on trillions. And if we can be in the middle of that arms race and you can be in the middle of that arms race, we'll all grow. And I think the hard lesson, though, I learned at Big Machines was initially my vision was way too broad. That's actually the original business plan. I made it with my father at our country club in Pittsburgh. And just that was like a front and back of an table reservation card. That was my original business plan. And we kind of said we're going to do everything. We're like, we're going to build a machinery marketplace. We're going to help manufacturers sell. We're going to help people buy. And like in hindsight, it was like 50 products. We're going to build them all at once. And we'll build them all in a year. And obviously, that was way too broad. And so I learned the hard way. We had to shut down our e-buy, shut down our e-marketplace until we just said, hey, let's just focus on what we called e-sales, which then became CPQ. And, uh, and I think that's probably one, one problem. Like I think the, my least favorite pitch from entrepreneurs are like, how are you going to win? I'm like, when you say, like, oh, I'm going to have a lot more features than all the incumbents. And I think now the more companies we build, they try to make them as narrow as possible. Like, just start with one thing and do that better than anyone else. And uh, kind of learned that the hard way. And I think then once we started growing, I think what Matt and I learned, how do we make this thing scalable? And I think learned a lot there from Salesforce. There's Dave Rudnitsky. He kind of was famous. He published their original sales playbook. But I think having a playbook... Because once it went beyond Matt and I, and we started hiring tens, hundreds of reps, we're like, hey, we have to have a playbook. And so that's still something we do today. And I kind of was something probably I also wish I'd always done earlier, like start investing in enablement, start investing in process. So as you start to get to tens, hundreds of reps, you have a playbook. And, but I think don't get too rote, because I think the best selling is still an art form, and I love selling. But I think being able to audible. You, know, you want a process, you want a plan, but then you got to feel the vibe and go with it. The other thing we learned, especially from Mark Benioff, is acquisitions are a good way to accelerate. Or Henry's been doing this incredibly well at Zoom Info. But I also think the best way to make acquisitions happen is to partner first. And certainly that's what Salesforce does. You get to know each other. You actually make sure your products work together. Do customers love them together? And then it can lead to very natural acquisitions. So we did one at Steelbrick, where we went from CPQ to quote to cash. We bought a billing company. That was a great partner of ours. 
and that really expanded the vision. Now it's Salesforce Revenue Cloud, is CPQ plus billing. And then also G2, we've done a couple, Siftery, that brought us G2 Track, G2 Stack. So it's an exciting way to expand your footprint more quickly once you have momentum, once you have money. And I think, but I think what I've done poorly so far, and I would do better like Henry, is you know, I think we haven't been thoughtful enough about integration. And so I think that's something we want to do better going forward. In terms of talent, I think when you're starting, and you've all had this, Henry talked about yesterday, at the beginning, frankly, you can't afford experienced people. You don't want them. Right? You just want young, smart, hungry people that'll do anything. At the beginning, you need that, right? You need all-rounders that'll just do anything, go through walls and figure it out. And then I think the best talent strategy for me has been across companies. We've built what we call our entrepreneurial family. But you know, we hire them like young, smart, fresh out of school, clueless. Then they learn with us, and then we keep building together. You know, one company, two companies, three companies. And this was our team at Steelbrick, and I think what was cool about Steelbrick, I think of the 200 people we had when Salesforce acquired us, over 100 were with us at Big Machines. And they were totally dialed in. We loved working together. And I think there's nothing like you know, breeding your own talent and then keeping the family together. And yes, don't use recruiters. Although I have a good friend, Nick, who runs Hunt Club. I do use recruiters now on occasion. I think when you really need specialized executives, specialized hires, but in general, I think, and also Henry talked about this, all his best salespeople are hired as SDRs. And I asked him in the breakout, like, what's your criteria? He's like, we don't have any. Well, he didn't quite say that. But you just hire young, smart people and then see who grows with you. And that's a much better way than using recruiters. And we do have now a very global team at G2, 650 people. So also going global. And, uh, and I am quite, we do have a team in Kiev. Kiev, and I am feeling quite sad right now. And I'm sure Makita will talk about that more. But it is a horrible time. Uh, but it's wonderful to have talent everywhere around the world and growing. And I think once you have your team, we learned also to really be conscious about culture. When I started my first company, I wasn't conscious about culture at all. It's like, hey, let's just start going. But then the second company, we realized from the beginning, let's be really clear about our culture. And so we defined a P culture, which has been common at G2 as well as at Steelbrick. In high level, we just said, we're the good guys. We had a competitor. Well, now they didn't use their name anymore. Aptus, they were the bad guys. But we genuinely believed, like, hey, we're going to take better care of our customers. Our customers are going to love us. And it's all about heart and really caring about your customers, caring about your team. And so our goal is always to have evangelical customers, have inspired employees, and also have our investors not just get a good return, but have them proud to be associated with us. And that has had a great impact on our ENPS. And I think the other important thing is we have authenticity as one of our core values, but I think also being you know, very authentic with your team. And, and you want to have bigger, you want to have process, but I think you still want people to feel the human connection. And I think the other thing I've learned the hard way is leadership does need to evolve. You know, I think you've all been at the startup days where everyone knows everyone. It's actually super fun. You know everything. You can solve every problem. But then you quickly realize once you get over 50 employees, and this is all also from Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn founder. It's part of Blitzscaling. Great book. But you, know, but you get bigger. All of a sudden, you can't solve all the problems yourself. You don't know everyone anymore. You can't coach everyone. And then I think we're now going to the next phase where we're becoming more of a city where really I feel like I can't solve. I don't even know what most of the problems are anymore. And you really have to build a team that will solve the problems. And your job becomes much more alignment. And this is something I've gone through. It's also kind of painful because I think 
you, a lot of you might have this where you find your co-founders, while they're amazing, they don't scale at some point as leaders. And so I have made a lot of changes. I brought in a whole new leadership team the last year, new chief product officer, Sarah, new chief revenue officer, Mike, new CMO, Amanda, new chief people officer, and now I'm looking for a CFO. So I've kind of found, wow, once we hit five, 600 people, it just needed more mature leaders. And I'm starting to build an office CEO, very inspired by Mark Benioff, because I was like, Mark, how do you do this? And he's got a whole office of the chairman, like 30 people, chief of staff, that just help him drive his initiatives and his impact. Make sure he's prepared, follows up for every meeting, runs his V2 mom, his alignment, and so I'm starting to build that myself. And, and I think in hindsight, and I'm probably like most of you founders, like I love my co-founders, I love my team, and then I'm oftentimes, in hindsight, I like wait too long to make changes even when I see people struggling and not being comfortable as the job gets bigger. And so I think don't be afraid to make the changes and even don't be afraid to have people leave because sometimes you're like, oh, wow, this person's indispensable. Like I'm gonna, even if they're not in the right job anymore. And, and I've always found, you know, everyone is replaceable ultimately. And in terms of stealing from the best, yes, Mark Benioff, he's still my idol as an entrepreneur, impact on the world. But I think one thing he's always used is a V2 mom. That's his first V2 mom. He's got a great blog, but it's his alignment tool. And, uh, but just writing down every year, every quarter, what are your key priorities? In some ways, like the OKR, but it's better. And we define one every year. You know, we actually spent a lot of time, when we started a leadership team in November, we spent three months, and there's also like a 10-page narrative now where we define our vision, our values, our key methods, our key initiatives. We set measures for everyone, and then we report on them every month. And I think that's the other big thing. I think especially as your company gets bigger, like don't assume your team understands what you want and what your vision is. And so I think also just communicating constantly what's your vision, what's your values, what are your key initiatives has been really important. And now we have a whole cadence I learned from Mark Benioff. You know, but how do we do monthly operating reviews with each team, each part of the V2 mom, obviously quarterly board meetings, all hands meetings. But I think now we've really formalized how we communicate because you and I think people say this and it sounds pedantic, you can't communicate enough, but it's true. And conscious leadership, I think uh, this was during my first company. There I am in 2009 with my baby daughter, Maddie, uh, my wife, Stacy, and that's our big machines team early days. We had really ugly branding, didn't have a good CMO, <laughs> didn't have a CMO, but those look like construction jackets. The what? Yeah, Lederhosen, yes. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, Halloween, going back to our German roots. Although I'm actually from northern Germany. It's funny, I came to America, everyone's like, where's your lederhosen? I'm like, we don't wear those. But I, I played the part. But the reality was, while my life was in a lot of ways great, like I had this, talked about it, but I had this constant fear of failure and anxiety, which was very hard to deal with for a few years. And then luckily I met uh, Jim Dethmer. He's created this whole conscious leadership movement. Conscious.is, and ever since then, in uh, 2008, through YPO, I met a coach, conscious leadership coach, Jim. I've been working with coaches ever since. And it has helped me, I think, much better lead, much better connect with people. And, and I was, I think in hindsight, I was kind of abusing myself. My first company, I was beating myself up all the time. I'm gonna fail, and I'm not doing enough. And, and frankly, then I would eat and drink too much to kind of try to stuff my anxiety. And, so I think what I've been working on ever since is being more conscious, meditating, breathing. For me, it's working out every morning, but doing something to take care of myself every day. You know, kind of no matter how busy you are, even like ignore emails, take some time for yourself every day. 
that's been crucial to me. And last but not least, uh, we're also now applying to Netflix No Rules Rules. Uh, I've gotten to know Peter Reiling. He runs leadership development for Netflix. But also, and I think this is what I mentioned, don't be afraid to make changes. But now we do this formally at least once a year. We just did it with all our leaders. Hey, are they still a keeper? And really, a keeper test in high growth company is only true for a year. Are they the right person in the job right now this year? And if not, either rely them to another job or move them out. And I think we're just getting more disciplined about that. And we just did it. And actually, the, the last inspiration is, yes, we are. I do like to say entrepreneurial family. But also what Netflix says is, you know, you're not truly a family. And I like to say, hey, the drunk uncle at Thanksgiving gets thrown out. Because we do want to be a high-performing team. And I'm from Germany, and this is a 2014 World Cup winners. Amazing. Uh, but they had a really high-performing team, right? The reality is in 2018, Germany, like, got knocked out early at the World Cup, right? Because they didn't, they didn't refresh the team. And I think just like a sports team, every season, you look at your roster again, and, you know, and you do make sure you have the right talent and the right jobs. And sometimes that's hard, but I think it's critical, especially in a growth company. Your needs change every year. And make sure you have the right keepers in every job. So don't delay. Thank you. Guys, give it up for Godard. <laughs>